Hello, welcome to Sleep Unplugged. I'm Dr. Chris Winter, neurologist and sleep specialist, and your host. Welcome to episode five, Sleep Apnea, Death by CPAP. Just want to start the show off with a few housekeeping items. First and foremost, thank you, thank you, thank you very much for your support. Looking at the numbers, it's been profound watching the number of uh, listeners grow, and I'm very excited about that. I mean, I think for at one point we were number 39 in medical podcasts in Hong Kong, so that that's that's got to mean something, right? So, in all seriousness, I appreciate those of you who are listening, and really appreciate those of you who are giving feedback, asking questions. Um, we're going to make this show something fun and of value for everyone, and it's kind of neat to be a part of it as it sort of takes its shape. We talked about early on that we'll make the first Monday of every month Insomnia Monday. So the next episode of Sleep Unplugged will be uh, our second episode uh, on insomnia. Uh, we instituted the mailbag, uh, which I'm very excited about. So if you have a question, uh, concern uh, about a sleep, uh, DM me. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at drchriswinter. You can also find me on TikTok, TikTok if you're brave enough to go there. Um, so I'm easy to get a hold of. Uh, you can write me, uh, ask a question, provide a criticism, and we might pick yours and put it on the show. In fact, we'll go ahead and start today with Bonnie. Bonnie's a 72-year-old who's using a uh, whoop band and stated that she's really enjoyed finding out more about her sleep. She's a big fan of the podcast. Thank you very much, Bonnie. And her question was, she has uh, noticed that over time, her percentage of REM sleep has declined. And so she kind of had two questions. Number one, is this device giving me real or accurate information about my sleep? And number two, could a medication that I'm taking be affecting that? Uh, so we'll start with number one. Yes, I think these devices do give good information. How good? Uh, it really depends on what your benchmark is. And we'll get into technology and 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 sort of uh, consumer brand measuring of sleep in later episodes. There's a lot of conflicting information about that out there. Some people love these things and swear by them. Other people think they're, they're garbage. Um, I think it really depends on the question you're asking and what sort of standard you're applying to it. I do think that there's a lot of useful information you can get from this. So if you've been using a device for a long period of time, like Bonnie, seeing that she's getting about one to two hours of REM sleep every night, which would be in that realm of normal, I would say, in fact, it's probably really good for a 72-year-old uh, a woman, and suddenly it's not there anymore. I, I do think it's reasonable to ask questions about what's going on. Could my sudden interest in alcohol at night, could my new uh, shift work schedule, could my new medication be affecting that? And I think, so I think the answer to your second question, Bonnie, is yes. Uh, medication can absolutely work to influence or suppress REM sleep. And we see that a lot as sleep specialists when we do sleep studies in patients. We always want a current updated list of what you're putting in your body because lots of medications can in fact suppress REM sleep and we want to know about that. So there is a chance that perhaps that medication that you are taking is having an effect on your REM sleep. 
uh, when you when you sleep at night. So uh, paying attention to that uh, is a good uh, is good, and this might be a topic you want to bring up with your doctor, uh, either your sleep doctor or your primary care doctor, in terms of hey, you're giving this medication, it's working or it's not working for the condition that you've uh, prescribed it for. But I'm concerned now about changes in terms of my REM sleep and how that might affect my sleep, my health, my memory, etc. Uh, so thank you very much, Bonnie. I appreciate that. Uh, like I said, we'll try to address a question or a comment in every episode. The other thing I want to institute, uh, I think that is absolutely necessary, is corrections. Uh, so last week, episode four of Sleep Unplugged was on white noise. Very excited about it. Tried to pull in some uh, auditory uh, audio examples of white noise, pink noise, purple noise, gray noise, and found out after I recorded this that the editing software that I'm using does a fantastic job of literally eliminating white noise from our recording. So while it might be making my voice sound better uh, as you listen to it now, any sort of uh, white noise, even when I was trying to make white noise sounds with my mouth, like if you make an H sound, it just completely edited it out. Uh, so sorry about that. I did post on my Twitter page uh, link where you can hear these sounds if you were disappointed uh, to not hear them in your recording. The other correction I will make is that I referenced a movie, Pump Up the Volume with Christian Slater. It was a 1990 movie right there at the edge of the grunge movement. Uh, and I referenced it as being 1984, I think because I was thinking about the Leonard Cohen album uh, various positions that Hallelujah was on. That was a 1984 release. So I think that was just my mind. So uh, we'll we'll try to address all mistakes and flubs uh, right at the top of the show for previous episodes. So if, so if I've said something that's egregiously wrong, uh, please let me know. The other thing I wanted to address because a couple of people have written me about that is guests. So you're going to have guests on your show or I'd love to be a guest on your show. And, and believe me, I would love to have you but we're going but the the show has been sort of set up where i sit down talk for 30 minutes my editing software takes out my white noise i mistakenly refer to christian slater's movie as happening almost a decade later than it actually happened or earlier than it actually happened um i'm relatively lazy by nature i guess and so i'm trying to create a podcast that is easy and fits into my life where i can sit down talk for 30 minutes and then be done not a lot of planning, not a lot of retakes or reshoots. If my dog starts yelling in the background, you're going to hear it unless my editing software can take that out. So at this point, there is no plan for guests, not because I don't want them on the show or value their opinion. I can promise you there's a bunch of sleep people out there who forgot more sleep information than I'll ever know. But just out of convenience and actually making this work over a long period of time, I think we're going to go no guests for the time being. Uh, but I appreciate you all asking about that. There's plenty of good podcasts out there with, with wonderful sleep guests that are on it. So let's talk about sleep apnea. This is going to be a, an interesting episode because there is a specific aspect of sleep apnea I want to talk about. But because we've never done an episode about sleep apnea, I want to be clear and define some terms so we're all speaking the same language when it comes to sleep apnea. So what is sleep apnea? Well, simply put, sleep apnea is probably the most common condition that I see or sleep doctors see in a general sleep clinic. 
So if you're look, if you're going to spend some time in my clinic, looking at all the patients that come with sleep disturbances, both adults and kids, sleep apnea is probably the lion's share of what we see. And what sleep apnea is is an individual who is struggling so much to breathe during the night that they are waking up essentially to catch their breath. So sleep apnea becomes an individual who can sleep or they can breathe, but they can't do both very well at the same time. And fortunate for us, our brains love breathing a little bit more than they love sleeping. So generally speaking, our brains will choose breathing and oxygen and not suffocating to death over sleeping and feeling great the next day. So there is sleep apnea. This individual is going to have multiple breathing disturbances during the night, wake up to catch their breath over and over again. And then when they awaken in the morning, feel tired because they really didn't have a good quality continuous night of sleep. I always describe it as you've got sleep apnea. So I give you a snorkel I do not have sleep apnea, so I get the scuba tank. And now let's go uh, evaluate the shipwreck. We'll investigate the shipwreck of the Endeavor, which I uh, made a kind of a flub in an earlier episode talking about it being the ship that was sent to explore the North Pole. It was actually the ship that uh, got stranded exploring Antarctica near the South Pole. So see, corrections everywhere. So we're going down and we're looking at this uh, shipwreck, forget the temperature of the water, and at the end of the day, we're going to sit down, have a big dinner and talk about what we saw. Well, I saw all kinds of things because I got down there in the shipwreck and looked around. I got plenty of oxygen to breathe. You, on the other hand, are swimming down to the shipwreck and you're using just a snorkel. You're running out of oxygen. So you've got to go back up to the surface, catch your breath and then start the exploration process again over and over and over. There's a very good chance you'll never even see the shipwreck because your brain wants oxygen. And that's essentially what's happening with sleep apnea. So how do we define it? So we define it by the apnea. So an apnea is an individual who has stopped breathing during the night. So we're defining it based upon how many of those breathing disturbances are you having per hour? So to, for the breathing disturbance to count, you have to stop breathing for 10 seconds or longer. So that would be the first criteria. And then your oxygen saturation, which we measure with a little pulse ox, a little red light on your finger, everybody's familiar with, has to drop by three or 4% or more, depending on the criteria. So if you stop breathing for 10 seconds or longer or have difficulty breathing for 10 seconds or longer, that's called a hypopnea. So we talk about apneas, you fully stop breathing, hypopneas, you're having difficulty breathing, but your oxygen level is still dropping and your oxygen level drops, that's considered one breathing disturbance. So what we do is we add them all up uh, at the end of a night, divide by the amount of time that you sleep. And we'll talk about how that can become problematic in a home sleep study versus an in-lab sleep study in a later show. And you get a reference number. Hi, Mr. Smith, you had a sleep study and you stopped breathing 17 times per hour or 0.6 times per hour or 97 times an hour. So the theoretical limit of sleep apnea is 180. If an individual had a 10 second breathing problem, a 10 second period of breathing in between, then another 10 second breathing problem over and over, they could fit three breathing problems in a minute and have 180 breathing problems per hour. The worst I've ever seen in my career is 144 breathing problems per hour. So there's the spectrum. You could have a sleep study and have zero breathing problems per hour up to about 150 to 180, somewhere in there. That, that's a big spectrum. So let's talk about how we define sleep apnea, because I think we are making mistakes 
in some of our patients in whom we define sleep apnea, that's really the topic of this, this, this podcast today is what are we doing with mild sleep apnea? And the way we define mild sleep apnea is an individual who has somewhere between five to 15 or five to 20 breathing problems per hour, depending on your scale. Most people use five to 15. So what that means is you have a sleep study and you have somewhere between zero to four breathing problems per hour. There's a very good chance that your doctor is going to tell you, hey, congratulations, we did your sleep study. You're fine. You're normal because you have less than five breathing problems per hour. Great. So what happens if you don't? Okay, well, if you have five to 15, six to 20, somewhere in that category, we would put you as having mild sleep apnea. And that's really the topic that I want to talk about today, because I think that's the part of the whole sleep apnea picture that we're kind of missing. All right. So if you have 21 to 30 or 15 to 30 breathing problems or 20 to 35, whatever you're in that sort of range there is what we would consider to be moderate sleep apnea. And if you have more than 30 breathing problems per hour or more than 35, most people use 30, you have severe. And, and, and you might be thinking, wait a minute. So if you have 31 breathing problems per hour, you have severe sleep apnea. Are there classifications beyond 30, because you just mentioned the worst you'd ever seen is 144. The answer is no, there isn't. So if you've got 36 breathing problems per hour, I'm going to say to you, hey, you got severe sleep apnea. If you have 136 breathing problems per hour, I'm going to say the same thing. You have severe sleep apnea. Technically, I don't. In my clinic, we have a little joke that we take the severe category, the 30 to 35 breathing problems per hour up to 144 and divide that into mild, moderate, and severe. So I would say that the 37 breathing problems per hour person has mild, severe sleep apnea, and the person who has 122 has severe, severe. So it's very important to understand that because if you think about sleep apnea, essentially what we're talking about is somebody's gotten a hold of your cell phone number and they're calling you like as a joke over and over during the night. Can you imagine how you would feel if you got 144 cell phone calls per hour all through the night? I mean, you would be functionally almost incapacitated the next day and really upset that somebody got in your number. That's essentially what's happening to patients with sleep apnea. They're waking up over and over and over and over during the night just to catch their breath. And you can imagine that somebody who has 30 of these per hour might look a little different in our clinic than somebody who has 130 an hour and certainly look a little bit different than somebody who has seven an hour. So as we look at sleep apnea and the treatments for sleep apnea, there are conversations that should be happening, but often do not. Why? Well, because sleep apnea we know is linked to a lot of very negative health consequences. I don't think there's many sleep doctors who would tell you, you know what, I don't really think sleep apnea is linked to high blood pressure, or I don't think sleep apnea is linked to obesity or negative cognitive outcomes or falling asleep if you're a truck driver. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can link to sleep apnea that are very negative in terms of our health. In fact, the reason I'm here today is because as an undergraduate, I was doing research with a guy named Paul Surratt. We talked about this in episode one, where he was looking at sleep apnea in relationship to blood pressure. And so the question was, if you have sleep apnea, is that an independent risk factor for developing high blood pressure? Or 
is it just because sleep apnea often travels with obesity that the obesity is what's causing the hypertension? It's not necessarily the sleep apnea. Well, Paul had this great idea. Let's give a thin research subject sleep apnea. So what he devised was getting these smaller Yucatan micro pigs that did not have you know, weight problems or, or, or sleep apnea or high blood pressure and putting breast implants in their necks. So now you've got a model of a lean pig who's got really bad apnea. We went on to do even more creative things where we were actually putting balloons in what's called their lateral pharyngeal fat pad, the little space of fat next to their neck. And so on Tuesday night, we could give that pig pretty bad apnea by inflating the balloons and constricting the upper airway, or we could deflate it and they wouldn't have sleep apnea. So what we're talking about in this podcast is obstructive sleep apnea. There's central sleep apnea we'll cover in later episodes. Obstructive is when you have all the tools ready to go in terms of your breathing and your brain really wants to breathe, but there is something closing your upper airway or making it collapse so the air cannot get past that. It's an obstructive event. So we did the study and I'll, I'll post one of the things I'm most proud of is in 98, we published a paper in the Journal of Applied Physiology called Sleep Apnea in Obese Miniature Pigs. And there's a pencil drawing of the Yucatan micro pigs that we were using that yours truly did. So when that paper came out in 98, I was really, really excited that my illustration was, was actually published. So the, the sleep apnea we know has got negative health consequences. And so how do we treat sleep apnea? Well, we treat sleep apnea generally in, at this time with CPAP, Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. It's an acronym. Um, a lot of my patients call it CPAC, C-P-A-C-K. Uh, even this doctor that, that hired me out of my residency, this older guy from Spain would always say, oh, I love, I love my CPAC. And we could never bring ourselves to correct him because it was so adorable the way he would use the word CPAC. Uh, but it's CPAP, uh, continuous positive airway pressure. And I will give you a, a warning that I, I call all of these devices CPAPs, even though a lot of the devices, the majority of what we use today are what would technically be autopaps, meaning that instead of a continuous amount of pressure that your device is blowing all night long, your device is automatically adjusting its pressure based upon how you're breathing in the moment. There's also BiPAPs, and we'll talk about all the specific therapies for sleep apnea uh, in future episodes. So most people use a CPAP, some people use surgery, some people oral appliances. So these are not the easiest of treatments. I mean, back before the CPAP was invented, most people who were treating the apnea used a trach. I mean, literally a hole right here to you know just bypass the obstruction altogether. You know, if you can't clear the rocks out of the entrance of the cave, let's just create another opening to the cave a little bit inward where the rocks have fallen. So that's what a CPAP is. And it's a relatively new therapy. I mean, this developed in 1980, uh, a guy named Colin Sullivan, not the Colin Sullivan that Matt Damon plays in Martin Scorsese's uh, uh, movie, The Departed from 2006. Uh, but rather, uh, which was actually interesting, uh, The Departed, uh, Martin Scorsese said, was the first film he'd ever made. He won the Academy Award for that, um, that he'd ever made without a with a plot, which I always thought that was a funny quotation, but a movie. Great movie. You haven't seen it. It's actually a remake of a movie in China called Infernal Affairs. So a lot of people think that Martin Scorsese wrote that. 
Um, he didn't. It was actually a, 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 a reboot, a remake. And he didn't know it when he signed on to make it, which is kind of interesting. But anyway, gosh, Colin Sullivan. This Colin Sullivan we're talking about is an Australian physician who is studying crib death, SIDS kinds of things, and thought it had to do with upper airway obstruction. And so as he was studying that, he was also seeing this in older individuals. Um, one night he was studying a patient who I think was preparing for a trach to treat their significant apnea. And they were doing a sleep study on him in the lab. And Colin was looking around thinking, well, I've got some tubing and some glue. I've got this motor from an old jacuzzi spa that I've been using the blower of it to calibrate some instruments. I wonder what would happen if I hooked the blower up to a tube, glued it to this patient's face and created some pressure in this individual's upper airway. Could I open up their airway and fix the sleep apnea? And lo and behold, he did. And here we are 42 years later, still using essentially a blower with a mask to treat most people with sleep apnea, uh, which is not ideal. People do not come to my clinic banging on the door saying, I went camping with a guy with a CPAP device and by God, I want one too. I mean, it's it's a real effort sometimes to try to get people to comply with a essentially leaf blower attached to your face for the rest of your life when you go to bed at night. Surgeries are not much better. Oral appliances, you shove these things in your mouth and they kind of create a, a more uh, advantageous uh, upper airway configuration and they can treat it too. So the point is we'll get into treatments in later episodes. Treatment's not easy. It's not fun. And when we tell a patient, hey, look, we think you need to wear this CPAP or have this surgery and, and, and really alter certain things about your lifestyle, why are we doing it? Well, we're doing it because of the negative outcomes, the negative health consequences of sleep apnea. Great. So like everything else, there's a spectrum. And as we think about that spectrum, I really want to think about the spectrum of mild to moderate to severe and whatever that entails, sleep apnea. So if somebody says to me, look, Chris, I got 78 breathing problems per hour on a sleep study. I gasp through the night, terrifies my partner. I'm so sleepy during the day. What do you think I should do? I can tell you exactly what you need. You need to get yourself a CPAP and wear it every day of the week and twice on Sunday. It's going to absolutely change your life. So what happens if somebody says, well, I, you know, I feel great, really healthy person. I don't take any medications. I'm married. My partner says to me one day, listen, I'm concerned about your breathing. I've read some articles about sleep apnea. I feel like you might stop breathing during the night and you definitely snore some. I think you should have a sleep study. And being the good partner, that good partner comes to my clinic and says, look, I'm fine. Everything's great with my health, but my snoring bothers my partner a little bit. And she just wants to make sure I don't have sleep apnea. Great. So we do a sleep study. And it comes back and says that this individual has mild apnea. They have 7.2 breathing problems per hour. What exactly do we do with that patient? And that's really what I want to get into with this talk um, and try to keep it specific. And that's why I called it Death by CPAP. And I'll tell you where the title came from. The title came from a 70-year-old woman who came to see me who had had about seven sleep studies over the last 20 years. And her chief complaint was the CPAP doesn't work. And so when you sat down with her, her history was she was unbelievably sleepy, exhausted, tired, fell asleep driving, has wrecked cars, just a lifelong history 
of devastating excessive sleepiness. I think we've talked about Epworth sleepiness scales before. Hers was like 20 or 19, something really high. So decades ago, she'd gone to a sleep clinic. The sleep clinic said, okay, well, great. We're going to set you up for the sleep study. They did the sleep study, diagnosed with sleep apnea, put her on a CPAP. She would come back to the clinic saying, I'm still really tired. They would repeat the sleep study in some way or another, put her on another CPAP, change the mask, change the pressure, change the type of CPAP device, but it was always the same broken record. Another sleep study, some variation of CPAP treatment for your sleep apnea. Another sleep study, surgery for your sleep apnea. Another sleep study, how about an oral appliance with a CPAP? So when she came to me, I looked over this really thick chart and all of these sleep studies. You know, anytime somebody comes to my office who's had six sleep studies, there is a problem. And the problem here was, I don't think that your sleep apnea is and probably was never the cause of what actually sent you to the clinic. Do you have sleep apnea? Sure. I think the worst AHI she ever had in any of her studies was 11. And a couple of them were actually normal. So sure, if you want to treat that apnea, let's treat it. But if if the if the CPAP doesn't work, I don't think it's because the sleep, the CPAP isn't working or we're not treating the sleep apnea well enough. It's because, yeah, your sleep apnea is kind of trivial. What are we doing with that? So that's really the point of this talk is that what are we doing and what is the conversation we are having with people with mild apnea? Because if you meet somebody who says, oh yeah, I was diagnosed with sleep apnea, I, I can't live without my CPAP. I can virtually guarantee you that their AHI is fairly high. The more they are praising their CPAP, the higher that number of breathing problems per hour, AHI, apnea, hypopnea index, how many apneas and hypopneas are you having per hour yeah, people who love their CPAPs, people who've named their CPAPs, people who will not leave their house without a CPAP, they have higher AHIs in general. So what do we do with the low AHI people? Like the person who says, I'm doing great. I'm here just because of my partner. And now you're telling me I have sleep apnea. Okay, what, what do I do with that? And I don't think that's as cut and dry as a lot of times it's presented to a patient. In fact, we see patients all the time who are told, well, listen, you've got sleep apnea. You need to treat it or you will have a stroke. Okay. So to me, that's like a patient coming to my clinic saying, look, uh, I want your opinion on something as a doctor. I smoke. What do you think about that? Well, I would say don't smoke. Well, let me tell you more about my smoking. I only smoke once a month. I smoke one to two cigarettes on that one day every month when I go play uh, cards with my friends. I mean, I guess I would say I still would rather you not smoke the cigarette, but the patient pushes me and says, oh, do you think I'm putting myself at tremendous risk for lung cancer because of that one cigarette I smoke a month, 12 a year? I don't know. I, I would rather you not, but I'm certainly a lot more worried about the person smoking three packs of cigarettes per day than your one a month. My guess is you're getting that many carcinogens in the air you breathe as you walk around the city. And so this is a real debate. You know, back in 2007, in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine, there were two sort of editorials. One was written by Michael R. Littner. He was a, a, a doctor, um, I believe, at UCLA, who said mild obstructive sleep apnea syndrome should not be treated. 
in the same article. This was uh, April of 2007. I'll, I'll post these uh, on my Twitter, uh, Dr. Chris Winter. Um, there was a there was a, an article by Lee Brown, a doctor in New Mexico, who said mild obstructive sleep apnea should be treated. So, Chris, you're running the podcast. What is the answer? I think the answer is unclear. But I think the, the answer that is definitely clear, definitely clear, is that we have to have a conversation about this. And the conversation goes something like this. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you came. Uh, you say you're very healthy and, and you're feeling great. You did this just because your wife was concerned about your sleep apnea. Do you have sleep apnea? You do. You have mild sleep apnea. And I always make a joke with my patients. The worst thing to be diagnosed with in a sleep clinic is mild sleep apnea. So then the question becomes, what do you want to do? And so there's often a conversation. Hey, listen, sleep apnea is associated with a lot of negative health outcomes. Name a negative health outcome. I bet you I can relate it to sleep apnea in one or two steps. It's not hard to do. Now, your sleep apnea is very mild. You had seven breathing problems per hour. If you had had four, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. But you've got seven, not four. What do you want to do? If the if the individual says, well, look, tell me more about this. I would say, well, you know, there's studies that have shown that even within mild sleep apnea, there's a multi-center study done back in 2020 that showed if you have zero to five breathing problems per hour, your likelihood of developing uh, high blood pressure was 30%. If you were in that five to 11 breathing problems per hour, which my patient is, that number went up to 45%. And then if you were in the 11 to 15, it was 52%. Now, relationships do not create causality, but maybe something that patient wants to consider. Even more specific and more relevant to our current research about sleep and cardiovascular outcomes or cognitive outcomes, uh, there is a doctor, Atul Mohatra, uh, who was at Brigham and Women's, who actually did a study looking at heart rate variability, which we will get into in depth in the episode I want to do about sleep professional athletes, like the ones I work with and how they measure their performance and recovery, there's something called heart rate variability, which a lot of the fitness trackers we use measure, which heart rate variability is basically the time between heartbeats. What is that variation? And given that we have this sort of sympathetic nervous system that gets us fired up to do things and parasympathetic system that gets us sort of settled back down, we're constantly being bombarded throughout the day and night with certain stimuli that kind of create changes in what we have to respond to. So the bottom line, just for the purpose of this episode, is that heart rate variability, having a lot of variability is a good thing. It shows a healthy nervous system responding appropriately to its environment and recovering appropriately. So if you have a terrible night of sleep or you drink a whole bunch of alcohol or whatever, your heart rate variability may be less, meaning that you're not having that appropriate response. And he showed that in mild patients, patients with mild sleep apnea, that there seemed to be reduced heart rate variability. Now, if you looked at the mean age in that study, I'm sorry, the mean age on that study was something like 25, I think. So really looking more in the moderate category in a lot of those cases, but still something to sort of be, a, be, be aware of. So then the question becomes, what exactly do we do with this? Do we, do we sentence the person to death by CPAP? Um, knowing full well that there's a very good chance that they're going to come back having worn a leaf blower, you know, attached to their face in a month and say, Chris, man, I wish I'd never come to see you. I wish I'd not listened to my partner because now I came here feeling great, sleeping great. 
And because of you and this study showing that I've got seven breathing problems per hour, I've got this CPAP device hooked to my face or APAP device hooked to my face, drives me crazy in the night. And I don't really feel like I'm sleeping or feeling any better. That, that can be a problem. Or we have the situation where the individual comes back and says, my God, Chris, what are you talking about? This, you, you didn't think this was going to help me feel better? It's changed my life. I, I, I thought I felt good when I came to see you. I feel amazing now. Now, here's where we get into philosophical and research differences. And as a clinician who sees a ton of sleep patients, I'm going to tell you there's a very big difference between could it happen and does it happen? And when you look at the mild sleep apnea should be treated, mild sleep apnea should not be treated, there's a lot of discrepancy there in terms of could it, does it. And what I mean by that is this. When I was early in my career, saw a 40-year-old woman, very fit, trail runner, came to me saying, look, I think I've got sleep apnea. I stopped breathing. Everybody comments on it. My husband comments on it. I'm so tired. Please, 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 please help me. And so we put her through a sleep study and she had three breathing problems per hour. Her age, I was three. And I said, oh, well, God, I'm so sorry. You don't have sleep apnea. I don't know what's causing you to feel so bad, but it's not sleep apnea, said the doctor with six months experience on his own who knew everything. And she said, oh, gosh, you know, it's really surprising to me because everybody thinks I have it. OK, well, whatever. And she left. Six months later, she came back and basically begged me, can I just try a CPAP? And let me tell you something, when somebody wants to put a CPAP on their face, or insurance companies, are you listening? If somebody is asking for a CPAP, we should probably let them use it or try it because nobody wants a CPAP on their face. So I said, look, yeah, I'll figure out a way to do it. So we actually got her a CPAP device to use for a month. It was an auto PAP device that would kind of adjust itself. So she left and wore it. Um, and I think around the same time I wore one too, because I was really interested. What does it feel like to wear a CPAP? And, and we'll talk about that too. She comes back in a month and says, oh my God, it's changed my life. And I'm like, really? You had three breathing problems per hour. She said, yeah, I can't explain it, but I just, oh my God, I knew that was the problem. Thank you so much for listening to me. So what's probably happening is that she's having breathing disturbances that don't quite meet the criteria of 10 seconds or dropping her oxygen level three or 4%, but they're affecting her sleep quality nonetheless. So if the question becomes, hey, Chris, could somebody benefit from a CPAP device or surgery or an oral appliance or whatever, who has very mild sleep apnea or maybe none at all? The answer is yes, it can happen. If the question is, okay, Chris, in the last 10 years or 20 years that you've practiced or whatever it is, I think it's 2004, so we're coming up on 20 years. How often do you see this? Not very often. And that's not because we're not putting it out there. That patient taught me a lot about breathing disturbances, meaning that when I see a patient with mild apnea or somebody who's really complaining of sleep apnea, we can try the CPAP. Hey, how do you feel, healthy guy, about giving it a try for a month? Maybe it'll help you. Maybe it won't. If it does, great. We'll go for it from there. If it doesn't, you just give the CPAP back and they'll give it to somebody else. You know, your, your insurance will lease it to you, essentially. So there's no risk here. Try it. So we always try to get our patients to at least give it a shot. So if you're asking me, okay, of the 100 people in that mild category who give it a shot, how many are coming back hugging you? Eh, not that many. 
it does happen. And frankly, there are some people who come back and say, Chris, you were right. It's not doing much of anything, but I would just feel better from a health perspective, wearing it versus not wearing it. And that's every patient's decision to make. In fact, I've got lots of those people in my clinic and I'm really curious to see in 20 years, do those people seem to be a bit healthier than the people with mild apnea who chose not to treat it? I don't have the answer to that question. So my 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 theme, my summary for this, this, this talk is simple. If you've got sleep apnea, number one, how many breathing problems per hour did you have during the study? I asked that of all my patients who come to see me who've had previous sleep studies. I would estimate that 90% of patients have no idea. They don't know that number, probably because the sleep clinician never sat down and actually explained the sleep study to them. It was more like, you got sleep apnea, you're going to die, wear this CPAP. And a lot of patients say they never interacted with their clinician after the study. Sometimes they just get a CPAP in the mail, like, here you go, figure it out. <laughs> it's on you now. So if you have had a sleep study or you're getting ready to have one or you just had one, by God, you should sit down with the doctor that ordered it and have a conversation about the study. If the doctor doesn't really know about the study or didn't read it because it came from some sort of service that does sleep studies, it's mail order, I got a big problem with that. I mean, can you imagine having a heart catheterization and then not really ever sitting down to talk to somebody about the results? Did you get, did you get a stint? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, they put a catheter in my groin and then I woke up and they said, you can leave now. Like that would never happen, but it does all the time with sleep studies. So there should be a conversation and the conversation should really hear what you have to say. So again, no right or wrong answer here, but we, we, we definitely need to recognize the idea that you're 37 years old and somebody's about to put a vacuum cleaner on your face for the rest of your life. I think that you should at least feel some benefit from that or be informed to the point where you understand that there may be some health benefits here that you may or may not feel. How do you feel about committing to this therapy when you're not feeling that? And probably the most important point I want to make, and I cannot stress this enough, and this is where the death by CPAP comes from. If you are somebody who is struggling with excessive sleepiness, fatigue, exhaustion, cannot stay awake, your life is governed and ruled by your degree of exhaustion, and you've been diagnosed with sleep apnea, you're on a CPAP and you're still feeling that way, before somebody does the second sleep study, the third, the fifth, the ninth, there needs to be a conversation of, are you considering causes of my excessive sleepiness that are not the sleep apnea. Keep in mind, sleep apnea is one diagnosis out of a possible, what, 88 known you know, sleep diagnosable sleep disorders. You do not want to be trapped in the clinic of a clinician that can only see sleep apnea, can only understand your sleepiness through the lens of sleep apnea, because that's where the death by CPAP comes from. Well, we're at 39 minutes and I like to try to keep these around 30. So we went a little long there, but a lot of definitions and things we want to cover. Thank you very much for tuning in to Sleep Unplugged. Please follow me at Dr. Chris Winter on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. 
Uh, my book, The Sleep Solution, Why Your Sleep is Broken and How to Fix It, has a whole a massive section on sleep, sleep apnea, uh, where you can get more information if you'd like to find it. Uh, I've written a book called The Rested Child, Why Your Tired, Wired, or Irritable Child May Have a Sleep Disorder and How to Help. We talk about sleep apnea in that as well. Kids can have sleep apnea, and it is absolutely one of the most misdiagnoses that you see in kids in their sleep. Um, as always, appreciate feedback. I'll post the picture of my uh, pigs. I'll post some, of these, post some of these research studies on my uh, uh, social media. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next Monday. Sleep well. <laughs>